Well, once again, we turn our attention to this wonderful and difficult book, Ecclesiastes. By God's mercy and grace, we find ourselves in a passage that deals with leaders and those around them. Now, I am not a politician, and I will fight vigorously against turning the pulpit into a political soapbox, though you may fight me on that versus the prayers as well as the law this morning. So, when we come to a passage that deals with rulers and those around them, we need to tread carefully. In recent times, the pulpit has become a bit of a plank or platform for pastors to stump for some charismatic leader or political entity, and I, uh, I found that detestable. I really do. You will find in our time together, I'm not one to be overly vocal about cultural or nationalistic events. It's not one that happens to me often. You won't hear me preaching about freedom and independence on the 4th of July. You won't hear me preaching on Thanksgiving at the end of November. The election day won't draw me into its strange stupor. Instead, I appreciate and adhere to parts of the church calendar. Beyond that, I let the word of God speak to us. Try to get out of its way as best I can. But, Every once in a while, the Lord lines up a passage at just the right time to speak to our current situation. I think this morning is one of those times. As a preface, the Christian faith and the Bible do not adhere to an American political party, or really any political party throughout the world. One of the more devious traps the devil has set for us is, trying our, is tying our faith to a political party or a person. Now, C.S. Lewis actually wrote this exact idea during the 50s in his famous letter or famous book, The Screwtape Letters. For those who don't know, it's a wonderful book about a greater demon, one who's higher up the rank in some way, writing letters of advice to a lesser demon, an uncle, a nephew, those kind of things. Screwtape is the older demon. Right? He's trying to give advice on how to tempt mankind. And this is what Lewis writes in one of these chapters, as Screwtape giving advice to his lesser demon. One, let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Two, then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then three, quietly and gradually, Nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent argument it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end, and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. And this is the last line. I can show you a pretty cageful down here. You see how easy it is to slip into this mess. 
as though our faith rises or falls with some political entity or person. Our faith has been around for a long time. It's said that the church thinks in centuries, not in decades or years. Though the rise and f- through the rise and fall of political entities, it survived the sacking of Rome, the church survived the Mongol horde, it survived the American and French revolutions, it will survive any upcoming or previous political upheavals because it is greater than the politics of this world. What we see from the Bible isn't the foundation and framework of some political entity that we can build up to replace the faulty political entities. We see an ethic for how to live amidst political entities. It tells us where we belong in the midst of this world. We are given advice on how to live when old leaders lose their mind or when new leaders rise up saying, this is what's going to happen. We are given guidance on how to be good and wise in a system that wasn't built for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, our passage this morning deals with wisdom amidst kings and rulers. It gives us wise counsel to when our leaders do less than reputable things in this life under the sun. And it begins by describing the wise. It says in verse 1, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? See, wisdom is hard. It's not an easy characteristic to grasp, and our preacher has worked hard to try and discover it. We saw last week, one in 2,000 were found to be wise. So who indeed is like the wise? Who can understand or interpret a thing? See, this is a shout for help. We're about to enter into a difficult subject. Those who are not wise will struggle with what is coming next. But for those who have wisdom, it says in verse 1, their face will shine. They will, not be able to walk through, they will be able to walk through this difficult life under the sun with a bit of a pep in their step. So what are we walking into? How to be wise with a difficult ruler? What do we do when a president advocates for violence? Not only in the streets, but also in the womb of a mother. What do we do when a boss tells us to fudge the numbers? When a pastor tries to sweep infidelity and abuse under the rug? How do the wise walk through that storm? Well, with a shining face. Let's find out how to get that shining face. Three ways our preacher advises us to walk with a ruler in this life under the sun. Submission, patience, and peace. Now those three build off one another. As one fails, the next takes its place. And so let's hope and pray as we go through it this morning that the Lord brings us wisdom. Not just milk, making butter out of milk here. Submission. First, we have that. Verse 2 gives us the first step in wisdom when it comes to, be, to interacting with a king or ruler. It says, keep the king's command. If you're requested to do something by those above you, those in charge, you should do it. That's our baseline in our relationship with leaders. Now I can hear the rebels rising up in the back row, grab me my musket. Why should I submit to a leader? Before really answering that question of the why... We need to understand how modern that question is. Because prior to the 1700s, most people would agree we should respect and listen to those in leadership. They give all kinds of reasons for it, from divine right to people having just a broken spirit. They won't rebel. But America was founded on insurrection and rebellion. French Revolution was grounded in the pursuit of freedom at any cost. 
Even the Reformation, for all its great work, was undermining the people in power. So we, in our current age, need to know why. Why do I need to submit? Well, our preacher, reading the 21st century room, was wise enough to give us an answer. Second half of verse 2 tells us that we follow the commands of the king because of God's oath to him, or, if you have a different translation, because of your oath to God. Now, I'm not going to get into the messy translation issues that are going on within this passage. What I can say is, God is the answer to the why question. Why obey the commands of a king or ruler? Because God has placed that king there. If you struggle to respect the ruler, respect God, and then try and respect the ruler again. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, tells us to respect the authorities placed over us because God has placed them there. Peter also mentions respecting the emperor, as we saw in the reading of the law. Both these men were, experienced, were later put to death by the government. The same government that they called to respect. You've got to remember that. They're grounded, they grounded their lives and their respect of those above us in God. They told us God had placed them there, even with the risk of their own lives. This is true for our president. It's true for our congressional representatives, the senators, the mayor, the city council. You want to name it, you find one, some authority figure placed there by God. If we truly believe God is one in control, he has placed them there. We are called to respect the offices he's placed over us. Even beyond the political sphere, we have to say that God placed our boss over us. The manager that sets your teeth on end, he was there. The VP who's obviously climbing the corporate ladder for their own gain and doesn't matter who they step on, God's placed that person there. They're all placed in their position by God when they call for us to do something. Our first step, our base level should be follow it. That's what our preacher tells us. Now to further bolster the authority of the rulers, our preacher even says in verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? The rulers that God has placed over us can fail, can fall into this category. Now they have complete control, is what our preacher is talking about. The kings in those days were very, very powerful. To undermine their authority is offensive at best and death at worst at that time. It's said that some of the Roman emperors from the first to third century were maniacal, I guess. And to undermine them meant death, not only for you, but also for your family. Nero and Diocletian were not fans of Christians. They used them as uh, scapegoats, as literal lanterns, and often as target practice. Now, we haven't seen a publicly maniacal ruler in some time. And I use that word publicly very honestly. Yes, people have accused our current president of being maniacal and aligning himself with some terrible people, but we have seen what happens when someone undermines them or undermines him. They aren't sent to prison and murdered. Their family isn't hunted down in the night by secret police. They are fired. They are mocked publicly on Twitter or some other social media. But that's about it. People aren't dying under our current rule. So we're trying to make connections to what was going on previously. Because our world isn't the same. People aren't being put to death systematically by our government. It's not happening. 
Now, in calling us to submit, our preacher is guiding us with wisdom. The wise understand the role they are in. They understand the authority of the ruler over them. They understand that the ruler has been placed over them by God, but they also understand that these rulers often cannot be questioned publicly, given either because of their authority or because their ego is so large that if you were to offend them publicly, it would go very poorly for you. The wise know, hey, I should probably not do this. Nevertheless, the wise's first step is submission. And beginning in verse, the beginning of verse 5 rounds us out on submitting to the king or ruler over us. Those who keep the commands will know no evil thing. That's what verse 5 says. Now this is a big statement and we can't separate it too much from the second half of the verse. But there is a sense that keeping the commands of those above us is a good thing. It's not an evil thing to submit to the authority over us. Don't go anarchist. Don't go too far into libertarianism and say like, ah, I need to be supreme over my own choices. Leave me alone. The preacher says it's good to follow the commands of our leaders. It will not lead into evil. Paul, Peter, even Jesus submitted himself to the governing authorities placed over them. And Christ was not the one lopping off ears at his arrest. That was Peter. And Peter later says, pray for our leaders and submit to the supreme. People can change. So this is where we start. Submitting. Obeying our leaders is the first step. It's the base level. But I can tell we are chomping at the bit. Maybe I've belabored the point a little too much on submission. I don't know. We need to talk about the possibility of a leader making some, let's say, questionable decisions. How do we handle the ruler or boss or king or president who tells us to do something that is considered not great? Brings us to our second half of verse 5 and our second point. Patience. Patience, I tell you, have patience. Second half of verse 5 tells us the wise heart knows the proper time and just way. Remember, this is all after telling us to, that keeping the commands of the king will know no evil. But when this king or ruler calls on us with a concerning command, well, we need to have some patience. This is probably the most difficult of the three pieces of wisdom our preacher gives. No one likes to be patient. Waiting for what you want or waiting for the right answer is stressful and often exhausting. A two-year-old is currently learning patience, and she's not learning patience quickly, which means I have to use patience when helping her learn patience, and it's not going well. But that is life under the sun, I guess. Look at the first half of verse 3. It's a little bit clearer than verse 5. Do not be hasty to go from the king's presence. When the king calls you with a command that isn't great, what can you do? Do not be hasty. Have patience. Do not flee. It's particularly interesting to many of us because we are well, we're shoppers in life. As much as we may hate that title, we are. If we don't like something, we can just leave and find a new place. We have the benefit of multiple locations to eat, shop, find entertainment, even to worship. You can find a new country if you don't like one. Our preacher says, wait, wait, wait. Just calm down. Don't flee so quickly when things go bad. When things start taking a turn, take a breath, have some patience. It's going to be okay. When you wait, you'll find yourself praying. Looking for a way to weather the storm placed in front of you. 
How can you deal with all these difficulties of a leader potentially leading you astray? Verse 5 tells us the wise heart will find a proper time and a just way to weather this storm. And verse 6 furthers this point. There is indeed a time and a place for everything, even when a man's trouble or evil lies heavy on him. We need an example, I think. It's been a little heavy right now. Let's go to Daniel, because it's a classic one, right, of government upheaval. Although that's not until chapter 3. We're going to start at chapter 1. It's a little bit easier. Daniel and his countrymen are taken from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon to be taught and grown into the men of the king's court. It's Daniel 1. One of the expectations of those in the king's court at Babylon is to eat and drink what everyone else is eating and drinking. I can't tell you exactly what the court in that day was eating and drinking, but we can assume it's a great deal of meat, a great deal of wine. I'm sure there were some fancy fruits and other foods from far off countries, but meat and wine were the food of the wealthy. Now this is unfortunate for Daniel as the meats were most likely not kosher, which is another way of saying they were not clean according to God. And the wine was most likely leading towards drunkenness because what else are you going to do when you're a wealthy leader besides drink yourself into a stupor? So what does Daniel and his countrymen do? Do they flee like kings? Do they flee the king's court and try to make it on their own in the wilderness? Do they say, I'm going to move to another country and start afresh? No. They're patient. They offer an alternative diet for themselves. They ask for a test from the guard. It says, let us eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days while the rest of the court can eat as they please. If we look healthier than them at the end of the 10 days, you'll let us continue with our diet. Lo and behold, Daniel and his countrymen looked better, proved themselves stronger and smarter in the 10 days afterwards. And patience and wisdom were in the heart of Daniel. He won out. So when you're overwhelmed at work with a boss who is breathing down your neck for questionable work, when you find yourself in a city with a mayor who does actions that baffle you, when you live in a country that has a president you find detestable, or when you are sitting in a church that does things you don't like, don't be hasty to flee. Don't run out the door at the first step, the first sound of something going weird. Have patience. Wait on the Lord to bless you with wisdom to weather this storm. You may be surprised at what can happen. Maybe the Lord will change, your, change the heart of the leader. Maybe the Lord will change the heart within you. Give you a shining face. Maybe wisdom will be poured out to both sides. We don't know. All we know is that we have patience in the midst of this. Now, before moving on to our last point, we have one more biblical story to kind of introduce us into this final point. Because sometimes patience doesn't end up well. Joseph, thrown in a pit by his brothers, then sold to slavery, finally ends himself, ends up in the house of Potiphar. Great leader in all of Egypt, Potiphar sees how the Lord blesses Joseph's work, puts him in charge of all the affairs. Potiphar is the only one over Joseph. Everyone else is under Joseph. He is in control of everything. He's living the good life. But then the storm comes once again. Potiphar's wife is insistent on bringing Joseph into her bed. And Genesis 39 says this insistence by Potiphar's wife was not a just one-time fling. It was a day after day after day request. She pursued him doggedly. What did Joseph do? He didn't flee. 
at the first moment that someone offered this. He rebuffed her pursuits day after day after day. He showed patience in the midst of a very difficult situation. He continued his work. He didn't give in to the evil place before him. He said no. He didn't run from the house, though. You'd think that the Lord would give him wisdom, right? Some clever way out of this storm. Maybe Potiphar shows up, sees his wife pressuring this worker of his into some uncomfortable situation? No. Potiphar's wife corners Joseph when no one is home and then accuses him of rape. Joseph's only response is to flee. His patience didn't result in a clever way out. It caused him to end up in jail. He did not commit evil, though, during this great storm. See, the story of Joseph showing great patience forces us to push further. What happens when patience doesn't give us a wise answer? What happens when the command of the ruler and king is not just questionable, but downright evil? The preacher calls for us to look forward and find peace. Leads us to our third point. When our patience reaches its end, it seems as though we can no longer sit quietly. Our preacher gives us peace to calm our nerves. Verses 7 and 8 should seem like familiar lines. He's offered similar epitaphs for the wise before. Though this occurrence is placed in a different context. The wise, he says, though they have patience and understanding of many things, they do not know what is to be and they do not have anyone to tell them how it will be. All they know is death is coming for us all. And this is where we find wisdom. Now, our rulers may be wicked. We may find ourselves in a storm. We will not know what to do. We may pray. We may ask God for some clever way to walk through this storm. But we may not get one. And the only answer may be, well, this ruler will pass away just as every other ruler before them. They do not know what will come after them and they do not know how to traverse this world. Though they may be in leadership, they will not be in leadership forever. To those who are under persecution, they too may die. They will be placed into God's hands. They will not be suffering forever. Now this is a cold comfort for all of us. I'm going to state that openly. It's not a great thing to tell people who are suffering under governmental rule. and Say, don't worry, one of you may die soon. But in many ways, the Bible's answer to difficulties in life is this. There are small helps, there are encouraging words. We have a great Savior who has said he will come under governmental rule and suffer for us. doesn't mean that our suffering will be removed in this life. But when we are pushed into a corner, when a storm rises up, time and death become an old friend that remind us it will not always be this way. Empires rise and fall. Rulers come and go. There are terrible evils that run all around this world. Yet it will not always be this way. It's the general idea that our preacher gives to round out the rulers under the sun who aim to hurt mankind. He kind of ends a little bit on that cold comfort. Death comes for us all. Now, some would argue it's not a comfort at all to those who are dying in concentration camps and tortured in secret prisons. So you have to ask, what else does the Bible say? If we're left there with just this passage, maybe there is something more. 
Maybe there's something else we can look to to find a little bit of wisdom. If you find yourself in a tough passage, my encouragement to you is to look to other places in the Bible to help interpret this or talk about this topic. So when we go into the Bible, we see two responses generally. One is confrontation, one's passivity. Most will assign confrontation to the Old Testament. We can again go to Daniel. This time going into chapter 3 shows someone standing up for their faith in a very literal way. He and his countrymen do not bow down to an idol and it results in persecution, thrown into a fire. They did not forego their love of God. They had to confront the king. Practically, they were honest. They spoke the truth. They did not stand and fight in an attempt to overthrow the Babylonian empire. They just said, we cannot do this. It's very reminiscent of Luther when he's under trial at the Diary of Worms. He says, God help me. I cannot submit to them. I only submit to the word of God. God help me. The New Testament gives us a few occurrences of confrontation. The trials of Paul in his way to Rome show a number of times when he must stand up and defend himself before a court. Stand up for the faith. Especially when he's pressed under by religious leaders who are mixing between political and religious world. Paul stayed within the grounds of the legal world, but he was not passive in his work. He did not just stand there and let it come at him. He fought vigorously to defend himself and get himself to a point of being able to share the gospel. The other response, passivity, you can also see it in Paul because there are times in which he did act passively. When he finally gets to Rome, he submits to the authority and he gets chained into a house waiting for his trial to end for months on end. Probably the best and most clearly seen passivity of governmental rulers over us is Jesus Christ. The death of Christ is a great representation of passivity because we have times during his trial where he literally will not speak at all, even when confronted by religious leaders. We have Old Testament prophecies that say he will be silent as a lamb before slaughter. So what can we say? What do we do when we're pushed into a corner, when the storm doesn't seem to let up, when we can't find a clever way to get through this? Here's a bit of an unsatisfactory answer because that's what I'm full of this morning. It takes wisdom to figure all this out. There are no hard and fast rules for each and every instance that goes through this. It takes thought, it takes patience, it takes prayer. I will say there's no real positive instance in the Bible where confrontation led to violence and a violent overthrow of a government. There's no real positive instance of that from a man's perspective. There are plenty of instances of God overthrowing giant governments. We have Egypt being tossed under by waters, but that wasn't as though Israel was fighting. It was Moses raising his hands at most. Now, there are instances of confrontation of the government for our faith. They all led to further persecution, though. What we know is that our preacher has given us God is in control. This life under the sun does not give us a complete grasp of what is to come outside of knowing that death is coming for us all. Our only hope, therefore, can be placed in something that's not in this life under the sun. It's only placed in the wisdom and truth given from someone that is outside of this world. 
preacher has said that all wisdom comes from God and God is the one who is outside of this life under the sun, we can therefore only rely on him in these stormy times. So I ask, place your hope in the word of God, which will bring wisdom and truth. Place your hope in the word made flesh because John tells us that Jesus Christ brought grace and truth with him. Even Jesus himself trusted in the Father prior to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will but yours be done, Lord. He was silent as a lamb before slaughter. He stood before kings and rulers. His wisdom and patience ruled out. Though he went through torture and death, he, his work brought about victory through the resurrection. And that's what we're getting to. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ inaugurated a new kingdom. We feel like this life under the sun, there is nothing more. We do not know what's coming around. All we see are false rulers rising up, thinking we need to trust in them, but they're always, always going to let us down. With the resurrection, we see a new kingdom, a king who will not be egomaniacal. A king who is full of love and mercy. He is a king of justice and goodness. He is a sacrificial king who gained his citizens through his own life. What ruler or king can say that? Is that what you want? Do you want a king or ruler who won't let you down? Do you want a ruler or king who's not harsh? Who's not a disappointment after years and years of sitting under them, finding out how crazy they're getting? Turn to Jesus Christ. He's a king who will not let you down. Rulers in this life under the sun are power-hungry tyrants. They're charismatic, underhanded fools. But Jesus Christ has brought a new kingdom without suffering and pain. He's been placed over all kings and rulers in this world. He is our true and loving king who will guide us through this life under the sun. Turn and place your hope in him because our Savior rules over all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and truth, for your word that rings true. Help us to submit not only to the rulers you have placed over us, but also to you. For this all in Jesus' name, amen.